following Jesus isn't always easy, but it is not complicated. And on this podcast, we try to make real life simple. And today we are joined uh, by one of my personal heroes, a guy by the name of Randy Frazee, who has been a pastor in Texas, in Chicago, and now in the home of the Super Bowl champs, Kansas City, Missouri. Randy, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Well, it's exciting to be with you, Rusty. Uh, you are also one of my heroes, so wonderful. Well, that's that's kind to say. Uh, Randy, for people who don't know uh, your story or, or kind of who you are, I mentioned some of the places you've you've pastored, but give us a thumbnail sketch on, on you. You're a writer, you're a, a pastor, um, husband, father. Just give us some of the, the bullet points. I think the overarching sort of meta-narrative of my story is I, um, like lots of characters in the Bible, the least likely character to be doing what I'm doing. Uh, I grew up in an unchurched home, came to Christ as a teenager, uh, felt this call to ministry at 15, uh, met my uh, now bride of almost 40 years at age of 15, uh, went to Bible college in Springfield, Missouri, on into Dallas Seminary for my graduate degree. And at the age of 28, I became a pastor of Pentego Bible Church in Arlington, Texas. And it was there, I was there for 16 years, started at the age of 28. Uh, it was there I had the privilege of uh, uh, not even knowing about it, becoming an author at the at, in 1994 uh, with a, a book I did with Abington Press called The Comeback Congregation. And then that led to a couple of other books, The Connecting Church and Making Room for Life. And then ultimately, uh, this, uh, this, this assessment tool I did with George uh, Gallup called the Christian Life Profile Assessment Tool. So this whole neighboring thing became a big part of who I am. And it was back in 2005 that Bill Hybels and Gene Apple at Will Creek Community Church invited me to come be a teaching pastor and really take the principles of the Connecting Church and apply in, in the Chicago area, which we did for uh, three years and it was a wonderful three years, but I got a call from uh, Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, uh, where Max Licato was the lead minister, and he asked me to take over for him, and uh, I did. And it was during that season at Oak Hills Church that I uh, was the architect of the story and the Believe Bible Engagement campaigns and a couple of other books that go along with it now, and uh, stepped down from that experience to really uh, follow the Lord's leading in my life to work with city movements. And uh, when I did, I got contacted by a church in Kansas City called Westside Family Church that really has the right DNA for me as a to still sit in the seat of a lead pastor role, but really come alongside and work with churches. And so uh, I'm still writing. Uh, and but really, the new thing in my life right now is leading city movements, which we've done recently with uh, Dave Ramsey and a movement called Margin with 110 churches. And uh, we're doing for Lent 2021 with 300 churches here in Kansas City, 300 churches in Hong Kong, Singapore, and uh, Accra, Ghana. Well, just a few things then that you've been up to. Yeah. Uh, that's that's amazing. Um, I, I think a lot of our listeners would probably know your work, The Story. Uh, we did that as a uh, Bible reading campaign a few years ago, and uh, we just loved it. Our people loved it. And I tell you... When I first picked up a copy of the story, I thought, why has this not been done sooner? It made so much sense. And obviously, I love the Bible, but the little passages that you put in there to kind of connect the dots, to mm -hmm. put things in the right order, 
made so much sense to me, um, and it, it certainly to our people as well. And for those that aren't aware, the story is the Bible put into story form uh, that's chronological, and it's just really, really well done. How did that whole thing come about? What made you decide to do that? Well, you know, uh, just like you, Rusty, I'm, I'm sitting uh, as a pastor wanting people uh, to understand the scriptures as the guide for their life. And I was in a Bible church, so you know we sort of prided ourselves in people sort of knowing the Bible. But progressively, as we were reaching people who were not brought up in church or were de-churched, uh, I just saw an increasing level of biblical illiteracy going on. And it wasn't just for the sake of knowledge, but it was really, I mean, you really, if you think the gospel begins in Matthew, you're really not seeing the whole picture of God's pursuit of you. Uh, and so I tried several strategies. One of them was a, a, an unabridged chronology of the Bible. And I started off with 200 people doing the program and ended up with three. And one was my wife uh, because it's just a, it's a very daunting task. It's a lot of rereading. Pe- most people, even of listeners, I would challenge, probably don't know uh, the one story that God has been writing since the beginning of time. And so the thought of an un- of an abridged chronology of the Bible put in a in a novel format uh, without verses and scriptures just seemed to be a good gateway into the scriptures themselves, not designed to replace the scriptures, but be a gateway into the scriptures. And for the first time, even a mature believer would be able to see in a, in, in a, in a really beautiful sort of elegant way, the one story that God has been writing and to see the old Testament wonderfully uh, bleed into the New Testament. So that was sort of the onus of it. To be honest with you, I didn't think it was going to be that popular. I was really writing it as a local church pastor like you. I was just trying to serve the people that I was involved with. And uh, and other churches picked it up, and it became uh, a, a wonderful uh, experience for many churches, to which I'm grateful. Well, I think that's probably obviously your uh, you know most notable work and bestseller. But uh, as we were talking about before we we began to record the book that really had a huge impact on my life was a book called making room for life. And I remember reading that right after we had moved to California we just completed nine years at a church in Kentucky and had a great experience there with our mutual friend, Mike bro. And, uh, just, uh, we had a new baby and, and my wife and I move out here with our nine month old and I get a hold of that book and I think, all right, this is how I want to order my life. We get a chance for a do-over here. Mm. We now are parents. We're in a new state, new church, new uh, just way of life. I want to order my life around these principles. And for the most part, we have. And it's been really, really life-giving for us. Explain to us where that book came from and a little bit of some of the principles in it, which are so powerful, especially in this crazy, hectic world that we're in right now. Yeah, thank you, Rusty. Um, you know, most of the books that I've written, I uh, would say the story would be an exception to it, but most of the books I've written haven't come out of a place of vision for me or theological insight. They've come out of a place of pain. So Making mm-hmm. Room for Life came out of a place of pain. Uh, I had been a pastor for about 10 years, burning the candle at both ends. One night I went to bed uh, and couldn't sleep. And, uh, and I mean, I'm not talking about sleeping, uh, and then waking up, uh, which is kind of common for a lot of people, but I never went to sleep at all. And that experience, uh, the next night I experienced it the second night and it went on for a total of 45 days that I did not ever go to sleep at night. 
I would just maybe do a little light uh, dozing off during the day. And uh, if you've ever dealt with insomnia, actually, I know that one in six Americans deal with insomnia, uh, one in two Americans deal with insomnia, one in six Americans deal with chronic insomnia, which is what I had. And uh, if you know anything about insomnia, uh, it is basically the result of your body getting out of whack. And uh, you uh, you have a number of, 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 of systematic things that happen, including anxiety, depression, and all kinds of weird things happening in your life. So mm-hmm. I thought I was going crazy. Finally went to the doctor and the doctor. Doctor, this is, and, and I'll, I'll try to keep it brief because it's a good book. Uh, but the doctor basically said to me, "You've got three options," and all I wanted to do was go back to sleep, Rusty. And uh, that there was no big vision here to change the world. I just wanted to take a nap. And uh, the uh, the doctor said one medication, which you're going to have to do at least for a couple of months, but maybe for the rest of your life because you've messed up some glands in your body that might not ever recover. And I felt so bad about that that I had just, you know, as a as a pastor, just not taking care of the boundaries in my life. The second one, he says, you can move to Borneo. And I, and I thought, what? And I thought he was, uh, I, I, I thought he was serious, but he's not kidding. But apparently if you, if you look it up, people in Borneo actually sleep too much. And what he didn't know is that I was thinking to myself, I wonder what a one-way ticket to Borneo would be. Uh, and the last thing he said, then he paused and said, no, that's not going to be possible for you. And I forced him to tell me what it was. And he basically said, um, basically, you could put some balance into your life. And I said, what would that look like? And he said, well, you could work during the day. You could uh, get together with your family and neighbors uh, at at dusk. And then you can go to sleep uh, every night at the same time. And I thought, well, that's super simple. And uh, well, I committed my life to it and went back and found that rhythm of life on the very first pages of the Bible in creation. And I call it the Hebrew Day Planner. And that is the core concept of the book that basically invites people to uh, align their life to the rhythms that God put in place in creation. And the Hebrew Day Planner basically says, and it's radical, most people won't embrace it at the first sight of it, but it's from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. You get your work done. From 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. is the season of relationship. Then 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. is the season of rest. With the season of relationship, 6 p.m. being the most important because whatever's first in the Hebrew day is the most important. In Genesis chapter 1, every day of creation ends with, and there was evening and morning the first day. And there was evening and morning the second day. Never paid any attention to that. But the Hebrew day begins at dusk on the evening before. And that makes that the very most important part of the day. It took me about two years, but I completely uh, readjusted my life and got myself back into a healthy place again last night. And last night I slept uh, about eight and a half hours. Wow, that is really good. Uh, I think the COVID season has kind of reset a lot of our body clocks, sometimes good, sometimes bad. I think there are some of us that decided we'd just binge watch Netflix and go to bed at 3 a.m. every morning, and that's just going to mess us all up. But for others of us, we got our rhythms of relationships back with our family and and kind of reset things. And this is not only a big topic for you in Making Room for Life, but it's a lot of what you cover in the Connecting Church, which um, was so helpful. As I started out here in California, I remember a friend of mine uh, on our staff, he and I just took that book and we said, all right, how do we play this out? And we did our, our version of the Christian life profile. And we had, you know, it was all about, uh, neighborhood groups and not just, uh, affinity groups. Um, so much of what you talk about in there is kind of the overflow of making room for life, relational based, small groups, relational based ministry. How has that changed over the years? Is it any different now than it was 
say, 15 years ago when that book came out? You know, the big thing that's changed, Rusty, is that um, um, it's actually more relevant today than it was 15 years ago. Uh, yeah. it, the book came out in 2000. And, and when I uh, actually, I was invited to, to speak at every conference there was. And I was kind of like put into the same group as you know, like the three-headed man at every conference. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, there's this guy over there that thinks that like groups of proximity, like neighbors, is, a, is an idea that's a really relevant idea. And people, and, uh, and you know, so I was kind of like the guy with the three heads, uh, but people would come to my conference. And, and uh, today that has really borne itself out with, uh, with our society and with the anxiety that people are experiencing. And the reason the principles are still relevant today is because um, God designed us in Genesis. He designed us with a certain DNA, he designed us with 10,000 clocks within us. And, and that hasn't changed one bit. He's designed us with a, a, a need for community. And so those things are still very prevalent today. Uh, and I think that the idea of going local uh, technology allows you to be global, but um, there's nothing that's quite dynamic uh, like being in community. Uh, with people where you can experience spontaneity, availability, frequency, and simply sharing the meal together on a frequent basis. People are starved of that. If you were born after 19, uh, you know, after 1960, there's a good chance you don't even know that you don't know because you were born into suburbia and uh, you have never actually experienced a season in your life where this kind of rich community is available. So we try to take people back into the ancient concepts of God and uh, they are more relevant today than ever. And as you said, Rusty, uh, COVID-19 has given people a little bit of a taste of the possibilities of what happens when you are forced to slow down and uh, sit on the front porch or the front driveway with some neighbors and waste the evening away. A lot more gets done in that setting than any of us ever thought. And plus our doctors say our blood pressure is down a little bit and we're a bit healthier. Okay, let's let's dive into this neighborhood idea because for many of us, our neighborhood looks like this: uh, you come home, you go into the garage, you shut the garage door, and you never see anybody. Um, it's interesting. Once they told us we had to stay at home, then we all start walking outside, and so n- now we're all walking around. We're seeing people we never n- knew, you know, their names or that they existed. Um, and for a lot of us, that that kind of introduction and beginning the relationship is the hardest part. Mm-hmm. How do you get over that barrier, especially for introverts who feel like, you know what, their business is their business and I'll just mind my own? Yeah, I would say the very first driver is is is, is really a theological driver for the believer. And that's Acts chapter 17, where basically mm-hmm. Paul is saying to us, that the, 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 the time that you have been born, the season that you're living, and the actual place where you're at was ordained by God uh, ahead of time. That, so that where you are at, you are not at by accident. And, and, he said, and he said, well, why? Well, Paul says, so that people will know that God is not very far away. And since we know that we are uh, the body of Christ, that we're two or more and are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst, that Jesus is in us. And that when we gather together in a community, that um, that he's right there. He's not very far away from the person that's currently hurting. So you have the number one uh, the number one command that survived the Old Testament is love your neighbor. Uh, the concept of love God, love neighbor goes away at the new commandment. So you'll never see love God, love neighbor again 
uh, uh, after Jesus issues the new commandment. The new commandment is is not for us to love God, but for us to learn how to receive the love of God and then to transfer to our neighbors. And it is the most uh, it is the most profound, transformable idea. And Jesus is a genius with this idea, so go with it. So when it comes to neighboring, a lot of people say, "Well, I um, I just don't have a lot in common with my neighbors." And actually, in suburbia, you do because you have uh, you know the, you you live in that neighborhood because you have so much in common, socioeconomics and, and the schoolings and all of those you have in common, that you just don't know your neighbor. And uh, the MIT did a study a number of years ago. Uh, they had a four-story building, and they were coming up with a hypothesis that, of who would be your best friend uh, over the course of the year for these MIT students. And they, they had come up with assumptions that they're going to be people who share the most in common. And at the end, they came out with what's called the proximity factor, which basically said it turned out that your best friend ended up being the person next door to you. And I would say that um, I would say that the the, the uh, just give it a try uh, and, and and make room for it. And that's why we titled the book "Making Room for Life." And at six o'clock, everybody puts their work down. You have a meal. You sit out in the front yard, not the backyard. Big shift in suburbia is the back. The drive the driveways used to be in the alleys in the back, and the front porches were in the front. Now we have the driveways in the front and the porches in the back. So we have isolated ourselves. So what we did in the early years is we just took our soccer mom chairs, got out of soccer and just put uh, the, the soccer chairs in the front yard to see what would happen. And people came along, there was no agenda. And uh, we began to find out that our neighbors had interesting stories and our lives intersected. And uh, if you give it a try, I think I haven't found one uh, person who has found that it to be anything but uh amazing as an experience and life-giving yeah i would uh, i definitely agree with that and that was my wife and i's story when we moved to california because we're both introverts and we both you know spent so much time indoors when we moved to california we said all right we get a chance to reinvent ourselves let's actually know our neighbors which led to just some incredible conversations and life change moments for all of us and got to baptize several of them and uh, still consider many of them close friends, even though we've, you know, we've moved since, but, um, uh, it, it is a, it is a game changer. The, the, the funny thing I always think about when you talk about the, the connecting church and the Christian life profile, and this is something I'd love to hear your thoughts on today. You know, one of the common things pastors hear is I need more, I need more depth. You're not deep enough. The church isn't deep enough. I need something more. And, you know, they're often talking about they need more information. Mm -hmm. And the Christian Life Profile, which was this assessment that you would take to basically see your beliefs, your practices, and your virtues, and kind of how you line up with those things, we put our, our church through that. And as, as, a, as I'm sure is true in every church, the belief factor was off the charts. Mm -hmm. Everybody was believing the right stuff. It was the practices Things like building community, you know, loving others, praying for other people, serving the poor, that was very low. And so it became a really fun talking point for us when we'd go visit our, our home groups and, and they'd say, you know, we just need something deeper. We could pull out the test scores and say, actually, you don't. <laughs> you just need to put it into practice. Uh, are, you, are you seeing that still to be true? Yeah, it is because it's a human. It's a human dynamic. And again, I had the the benefit of being mentored by the late George Gallup Jr. on this, who really helped me to form the construct of the relationship between belief, practices, and virtues. 
As a matter of fact, uh, Rusty, um, this is so consistent with the teachings of scripture, you know, uh, for someone to say, you know, that they love God, but that they hate their neighbor. You know, John says, he says, well, you're mm-hmm. just a liar. You're not because there can't be this uh, chasm between beliefs and practices. And, and what I would say is that, as a matter of fact, I remember going to Gallup and saying, every time we take the test, people are ranking themselves so high in the beliefs. Why don't we just take them out? And he said, no, you can't take them out because this is the aha moment for people. Because in Proverbs, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The kind of person you become is actually driven from your belief system. If you have people in your church that are high on these 10 beliefs, but low on practices and low on virtue, it means that they may know about the belief or think it's the right answer, but they don't actually believe it as a way of life. And this mm. becomes this becomes the confession of unbelief, meaning that I, th- I think this was the right answer. I believe, for example, a person, a person that um, a person that believes in uh, a person who, who really struggles uh, to show kindness to somebody of a different race or somebody who is different from them is someone who doesn't really believe in God's view of humanity. Uh, so mm-hmm. someone says, do you believe all Christian? Do you believe all people are loved by God and need Jesus Christ as their Savior? That all people matter to God? And a Christian would say, I believe that. But if it shows up that they struggle, you know, in the love of their neighbor, then the response is, you don't actually believe that. So you need to go back and you need to go back and relook at this belief a, a little bit deeper. And so we need to be reminded as well that the Christian life it, the beliefs are extremely important, but not just believing them intellectually, but believing them as a way of life. And it is the spiritual practices that take those beliefs and move them 12 inches from our head south to our heart, where it ultimately begins to form us. And let's not be mistaken, transformation has very little to do with information. It has everything to do with becoming more like Jesus. Mm, well said. All right, I want to I want to shift gears to another book that you wrote that we've not talked about yet, and this again came out of a season of pain, and that was after the death of your mother. You wrote this book called "What Happens After You Die," uh, a very common question a lot of people have, and a very common uh, uh, question we have a lot of theories about. Um, and it led you to do a deep dive on eternity and how to make sure we go to the right place. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about that book and that season in your life and, and what you learned through that. Yeah, back uh, in, in uh, 19, late 1999, December, as a matter of fact, I was, um, I'd finally gotten to a point, Rusty, where we had enough money and my wife agreed that we were going to treat my mother and my father uh, to an all expense paid for trip to Niagara Falls. They lived in Cleveland, Ohio, where they raised me. And it's about a two and a half hour, three hour drive to Niagara Falls. So for Christmas, which the falls are very beautiful during Christmas time, I was at this place to treat my mom to this, who just sacrificed so much for me and my three siblings. And, um, and, and she basically, uh, ended up dying three days, uh, before we were to leave of advanced pancreatic cancer, it just sprung up on her and took her life. And uh, that sent me into uh, a deep, uh, dark place. Uh, and I was being mentored at the time, uh, as, as you know, through some of the writings that, that I've done with, uh, with Believe and the Christian Life Profile by George Gallup uh, Jr., uh, Dallas Willard, and uh, Jim Packard, or J.I. Packard. And uh, those guys are right there with me. And they basically said, uh, Randy, um, uh, you don't believe in heaven. 
And I said, oh, yes, I do. And they said, no, you don't, because you have lost hope here. And the hope hmm. hope for the Christian is based upon uh, the promise of the life, the, the, the afterlife. And so you either don't believe in the promise or you don't believe in the one making the promise. You need to probe that a little bit more. And this is where, you know, the belief series ultimately, you know, it, it really finds its anchor is that, again, I believed that heaven was the right answer, but I did not believe it as a way of life. And it, it really sent me into a, a, a dark place where I actually stood up in front of the congregation that I served in uh, Arlington, Texas, and said, I don't believe in heaven. Now, I know it's the right answer, but I don't believe it. I really struggle to believe that this is all going to happen. And it got me into trouble with some people outside of the church. They said, you can't, you know, what I found that I will experience, Rusty, is that uh, the church is one of the last places you want to confess what you don't believe. Uh, <laughs> I found I got more buy-in from my neighbors who didn't go to church. Says, well, I don't believe that stuff either. And I said, well, look, can we talk about it? Because I can't talk to my people at the church about it because you can only go to church if you believe the right things. And I really think that we need to go back and, and, and realize that the, the confession of, unbe- of unbelief, as we saw with the man who encountered Jesus, is really the beginning of deep belief. So uh, what I did was I, I just did a deep dive, not knowing a book was going to be written out of it. I just wanted to know the answers about how does one get into heaven? What is heaven? And I'll tell you the biggest discovery for me, Rusty, and I knew this going to seminary. You know this going to seminary. Uh, but for some reason, we teach people that the whole transaction, all of the promises come to you when you die. But the reality is in the Bible, there's only three passages of scripture in the Bible that explicitly talk about where you go after you die. Most of the scriptures that deal with the afterlife come at the resurrection when Jesus returns to the earth. And and the idea is that heaven is not up there, but the ultimate kingdom of God is going to be on earth. And a lot of people uh, just have missed this. And I found living on earth, on the new heaven and the new earth, Revelation 21, 22, is a much more tangible, compelling vision for me. So today, I think I'm about 85% there. Someone tells me they're 100% there on the afterlife. You know, um, I don't know that I could possibly believe that. you know, but I'm about 85% pretty sure that this thing's going to happen like this. And I've got a vision for it. And I tell you what, you can deal, as Paul said, you can deal with any type of temporary trouble today when you know that ultimately where you are heading is already accomplished. So it's a great book. It's it's one of my favorite. Well, I found it to be very, very helpful. I've read a lot of those heaven books um, and, and they all provide some different insight on it. I thought yours was really thorough without being, um, you know, too intellectual that it would go over people's heads. Um, it, it was just, it was just really great. Um, let me ask you just cause we have a lot of pastors that listen to this conversation. What encouragement would you give them, um, about, about COVID season? Uh, I had the privilege of, of, you know, seeing a PowerPoint that you did and kind of walked us through some, some big changes and, I heard this, I think it was yesterday, that uh, COVID forced five years of change and five months on most of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these things that we're getting to now, we would have gotten to eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, little things like even the church's desire to get a digital presence. But, you know, what does life look like after this? And what are the things that we'll never see again? What are the things that will snap back to normal? What, what's your thinking as you lead a church um, through this season? 
Well, I think the first thing I would say, and Rusty, you and I are uh, running, uh, you know, are, are part of a similar tribe of people that are bearing their hearts and souls. And I think what we all would say to anybody listening, and you're just feeling discouraged and a bit uh, overwhelmed or exhausted, you are not alone. Uh, uh, I'm 31 years into pastoral ministry, and there's parts of COVID that are so exhilarating to me, uh, but th- there are parts that are just uh, got me exhausted. You know, and a real big practical issue is that our governor just, you know, delayed school opening until after Labor Day. And uh, I've never had a plan. I've got a meeting later this afternoon where we're changing the plan for the fourth time. And mm-hmm. uh, that's just exhausting, you know, from sermon preparation and all of that. So if, if you're feeling if you're struggling, uh, you know, then you, you just need to know that you're not alone. Uh, pastors that have been in this a long time are feeling a bunch of fatigue. So I find it very, very helpful to know that, that, you know, that others are, that I, I find great, I, I find great comfort in your pain. <laughs> the, second thing, the, the second thing I would say is uh, uh, that you, just like you said, these changes were already in the making. They were already in the making. And, uh, and so they've just been expedited. So COVID didn't bring us anything new. COVID just, as you said, fast forwarded things. Number three, I would say is don't be afraid. Actually get pretty excited about it because in the first three centuries of the church, um, the church did not have a building and they actually didn't even have full Bibles for the first three centuries. But if you haven't read the book, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, a non-believer who, who chronicles the rise of Christianity from this guy he calls the marginal Jesus who should have never have made it anywhere to uh, by eighty three fifty before there's any buildings uh, reached thirty three million eight hundred thousand plus people in the Western world or fifty six point six percent of the entire Western world with no buildings they did it basically on a neighborhood open neighborhood structure where a handful of believers in a neighborhood meeting in homes would invite the people in the houses in between. And the church did some of its most dynamic, powerful work during that time. I think what's happening right now is that we're being taken back to our roots, uh, what I would call an ancient future type church, where what we need to do, and this is what we're doing at our church, uh, we're looking back again in the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and taking a fresh look at it again. Uh, some people believe that this has just been an interruption, and I've been talking to a lot of pastors who believe that it's an interruption, and they're just hoping and praying that it's just that, and that soon and very soon we'll be back uh, to being in our big buildings again, where people will be sitting still and quiet listening to us. I see it a little bit more of a disruption and a welcome disruption. And I'll tell you why, Rusty, if I have just a few minutes, um, is um, I read a, a study uh, uh, recently, maybe you did as well, by George Barna, not the Barna Research Group. They're putting out some awesome stuff. But actually, George Barna, he's alive and well, and he's uh-huh. working at Arizona Christian University, the Cultural Research Center. And he put out a, a pretty dismal um, uh, study just recently. It's a brand new study. Uh, and basically saying seven out of 10 Americans claim to be Christian, claim to be Christian, but only 6% of them, when tested, uh, claim to, to hold to a biblical worldview. And that, that number has decreased 50% in the last quarter of a century, which is basically on my watch. My 31 years of ministry, a biblical worldview has dropped by 50%. Amongst 18 to 29-year-olds, they only report 
to uh, only 2% of them holding to a biblical worldview. We have a bigger problem on our hand than when are people going to get getting back in church. The new day is going to be all about transformation, not addition. It's going to be transformation. If we don't start tackling a more relevant, dynamic approach to people becoming more like Jesus in community, into dynamic community, historical Christianity as we know it is going to go away. That sounds dismal, but I think as a pastor that is listening to this with the Holy Spirit in him, this should become a holy discontent moment where we see the calling on our life and that these new, this, this disruption because what we've been doing in the past isn't getting us there. Not that there are bad things, but they're not combating with what the world is offering people in terms of the digital, the, the, the dynamic of digital technology and information coming at them. Our once a week sermons, which we know people don't attend once a week, is just not combating the influence of the world in their life. And so we have a chance, and particularly the younger pastor who's got a lot more tread on his tires. He's got maybe a little bit longer um, uh, rope. Uh, here from which he can actually see something happen in his or her lifetime. Mm, That's well said. Great word for all of our church leaders and all of those who are, who are nervous and scared. And, and uh, you're right. There, there is this sense of, of loss of, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 50 and I, I don't consider myself old, but I've been amazed at how I've thought lately, like what I would consider to be an older person would think where I'm just missing, missing the good old days mm-hmm. and the ability to stand up in a room that's full and, uh, you know, see people's faces and hear laughter and see response. Um, it's a good gut check for all of us pastors to get back to what matters most. And it's not, um, you know, filling a room so that you can, uh, fill your ego or, or feel good about yourself, uh, as a sign of transformation, which is truly not. Yeah, yeah, Rusty, well said. I, I think that the metrics are changing before our eyes. I, I felt even as a young pastor years ago, working with George Gallup Jr., that the metrics have to change. Until the metrics change on how pastors mm-hmm. keep score, we're going to continue to pursue the the trophy related to those metrics. The metrics right. turned on their head. You know, the Outreach Magazine list very, very important for pastors of, of churches our size. We we try not to look at that list, the fastest growing, the largest. We try not to, but doggone it, you know, we want to be on that list. And so we pursue it. And, uh, and, I, and I think that there's a gut check there. Now, I had a professor at Dallas Seminary, uh, John Hannett, has said, if on any given day your motives are 60% pure, it's a good day. <laughs> and so it's a good day. So I'm not calling for, for, for perfection. I think Jesus has factored in uh, some of our impure motives in that. But if we can ever just get past the 50% mark, we're probably in a good place. But I think the new metric is going to be the number of people you have in missional small groups. Uh, I think that's going to be the only thing that's going to really count. And a missional small group is a holistic small group. In Acts chapter 2, they they were really devoted to belonging as a community. They were devoted, that same community, that little small community was devoted to growing to become more like Jesus. And that same community, out of what Christ was doing in them and through them, they began to meet the needs of the people around them. And at the end of the paragraph, it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those are being saved. As you see that as a cycle or a revolution, that's the new flywheel. And I think that's going to become 
the new metric. So that would be my encouragement to pastors. Uh, our, our fascination with the central gathering on Sunday morning, I don't think we're going to see that one for a very long time, maybe never again like we've seen before. Uh, but the exciting thing is, is the new metric is actually more transformational than the little bit more of the passive, passive experience that we provided on Sunday mornings. Mm, that's good. All right. I got two questions for you that are softballs. Here, here you go. You live in Kansas City. What's life been like? I mean, obviously, COVID is changing everybody's life. But what's life been like since the Chiefs won the Super Bowl? <laughs> boy, it has been so wonderful. And boy, I slipped in under the radar, my friend. I've only been here for under two years. And I know you're a Kansas City fan. Uh, it, I, I can't believe and I have claimed him like I've been here all of my life. It's an Good for you. It's an exciting team. You know, Patrick Mahomes, of course, I spent most of my life in Texas. He's a good Texas boy uh, where he went to school. And uh, it's super exciting and uh, uh, for sure. So we're looking for a repeat if they ever get to play again. Yep. And I'm also excited about my uh, uh, being here. A guy named Day- Dayton Moore, uh, who is yeah. the general manager of the Royals, is an amazing follower of Jesus. Yes, and, he is. Uh, and I have to tell you that, I, matter of fact, I have a meeting with him on Tuesday. We have formed a wonderful uh, group to deal with racial reconciliation, and uh, like many cities are. And uh, it's just so exciting to sit uh, with uh, with a guy like Dayton Moore, uh, not only who's super good at, at, at uh, baseball, but really super, super passionate about his faith. I love being here. Not many know that name, but I would tell you that one of my favorite books I've read over the last probably five years is the book that he wrote after the Royals won the World Series called More Than a Game. Mm. And it is so rich of just leadership principles and insight. I mean, he took a team. First of all, the owner gave him 10 years to turn it around, which is phenomenal. Yep. But he took a team that was the worst and slowly built it back to championship level, which he's having to do again right now, but such is the nature of baseball. But uh, man, just an incredible job. And it's a, a really great read. Uh, it's baseball, but also life and leadership as well. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Uh, what's better? What's, what's better barbecue? You've been in oh, Texas, you've been in Kansas City. Oh man, now I can get in trouble here. <laughs> so I'm going to play politician on you and tell you what I like about uh, what I like about uh, each one of them. Okay, uh, I'll let you do that. Okay, uh, I am not a burnt end fan. Uh, okay. And you may be, because that if you're not from Kansas City, you know that burnt ends are the thing here, right? But yep. I have to tell you, let's talk about what burnt ends are. Uh, burnt ends are the end of the meat, and they're fatty, and they're burnt. Okay? There's nothing really that great about them. Now, I'll eat them, but I'm not a much of a fatty meat burnt end sort of guy. So I know that's mm-hmm. the craze here, uh, but I love the ribs here. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so my favorite is probably uh, uh, Joe's is my number one, and Q39 is my second. Mm. Um so those are my yep. two favorites. If you're not from Kansas City, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But yep. now I'll tell you, the brisket in Texas is, is not that thin brisket. It's a little bit thicker brisket. I think yep. the brisket's better in Texas. So I am just for everybody. Yeah, I, and I would totally agree with you. Brisket is what Texas is known for. And you don't even need sauce for it. It's so good. Yep. But in Kansas City, yeah, burnt ends. What, what do they call that? Barbecue candy, I think. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not so much of a fan, but the ribs at... Um, 
at both those places you mentioned, but also Jack Stacks yeah, and yeah. Uh, LCs. Man, they're just phenomenal. So, well, we could talk all day about that. Randy, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for all your leadership and your faithfulness and all that God has done in you and through you and how you've shared that with us in your works. And uh, if our leader, if our leaders and listeners want to, you know, get more resources from you or hear more from you, where can they find you? You have a website, I assume? I do. It's pretty simple. It's Randy, uh, uh, randyfrazy.com. Okay. And that's two E's at the end of Frazy, correct? It is. Huh? Yeah. No, I, I am crazy, uh, which is spelled with the Y, but my last name is Frazy, spelled with two E's. <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hope this was helpful for you. And please share this with a friend and encourage them with it as well. Let's share.